Well, praise God for the old-fashioned way. And praise God for the fact that it gets us right to where we need to be. Thank you so much, Mrs. Fong, for helping me out there. What a blessing the music has been. I, you know, I know sometimes if you have something near you and around you, it's easy to take it for granted. For instance, if I were to say, hey, how do I get to the harbor down there in San Francisco that has all the, all the sea lions? Sea lions, right? Sea lions? Seals? Sea lions, that's what I thought, right, okay. I, I, you were looking at me like you'd never heard of San Francisco before. <laughs> and uh, what if I said to you, how do I get to that harbor? You say, oh, yeah, yeah, you, know, you just go down this street, and you go down, the, you go down there, and you take a right and a left, and you'll make it. And, and I said, well, ha- have you been? You know what a lot of people in San Francisco would say? Oh, no, I haven't been, but I, I need to get down there sometime, <laughs> Right? Or how, how can I get to the, uh, the, the uh, south side of the, north side and south side, south side of the Golden Gate Bridge? I, isn't there a park down there at the south side of the Golden Gate Bridge? I want to get a, a picture. Will you take a right here? Well, ha- have you been there recently? No, no, but I'm going to get there someday. You know why that is? Is because what's near us often we take for granted. And I hope you don't take for granted the good music in this church. I mean, it is a blessing. It really thrills my heart. I was listening to the choir CD today, Pastor, and my, oh my, what an encouragement that was. And, and uh, just to think that, that uh, I've been able to see some of that even develop. Now, it's always been good, but I mean, I think it's just getting better and better. And I thank the Lord for the musicians that come early and stay late and practice long. And, and uh, that takes a little bit of an extra sacrifice. I want to thank Thank you for it. Uh, I, I, I need to deal with something before we get into the message tonight. You know, last night, some people gave me a, a bag of cookies, and that was very good. And uh, somebody gave me a pound cake, and that was very good. And then before I left, somebody slipped a red bag to me, and I thought, wow, this is good. They said, this is going to be a memento of San Francisco. And I said, I can't wait. I thought maybe it'd be a model of San Francisco Gate, uh, Golden Gate Bridge, or maybe, uh, maybe a plastic sea lion. I don't know. And... Um, I pulled out a cat. You know, that thing was looking at me all night long. And I tried to wave at it, and I kept waving at it, and it just, finally I went over and did some high fives with it, you know, and, and I picked it up and looked at it, and it backhanded me, you know. I just, I couldn't get away from the cat. So the cat is out of the bag. So whoever, uh, whoever lays up late at night thinks of sadistic gifts to give to the preacher, you've accomplished it. That, that's great. I'm going to cherish that forever. And I'm sure my boys are going to love to see the cat. What that, That's fantastic. I had a good, good day today. I hope you had a good day. You know, it's a blessing to be with God's people, isn't it? And uh, we had a great time with the men this morning just around the Word of God and, and giving them some truths of Scripture. That was a blessing. And uh, then tonight, uh, brother, brother Anthony came and picked me up, and we had a great trip here. He was chasing people down, trying to run them over and give them the gospel, literally. So I, I hope that if Anthony ever comes and picks you up, you'll be buckled. Make sure you get your seatbelt buckled. We were... We were, uh, you know, I, I, you know, hey, pastor's all about witnessing. So I guess that's one way to put the fear of God in people around here. I said, Brother Anthony, it's a good thing you didn't have the Heritage Baptist Church sticker on that sign. You about run that guy over. And uh, we would have been in jail. I'd have had to call pastor from jail and tell him it was his job to preach tonight. But uh, thank the Lord for it. Take your Bible tonight and turn with me, if you would, to Second Chronicles. 
and stand out of respect for God's word as we get into the scripture. Second Chronicles chapter 24 in the Bible. I just met Bob Crichton who pastored for several years up in, in uh, the northern part of the New England area, Connecticut. I don't know if pastor knows him, but he is a fine man. And uh, he was leading in the evangelistic efforts that we had in Rhode Island this last October, November. He would give the daily challenge at one after we'd eaten, and uh, we'd go out soul winning after that. And he told about how he had gone down to Lester Roloff's home years ago, and he got down there, and Brother Roloff had, had encouraged him to get one of the men in his church down there to the home in Corpus Christi, Texas, and he got... He got him down there, and, and uh, he got him on the island, a little island off there, off into the Gulf. And he said that, he said that uh, they were walking around the home, and he was getting a tour. And he came on the beach. That's where they land their airplanes, on the beach. And he said he noticed down at the end of the beach, there was an airplane that was wrecked. And he said to the assistant, he said, hey, brother, he said, what, what's that airplane down there? It's wrecked. He said, oh, he said, well, he said, Brother Roloff wanted us to go get some criminal or some guy that either had to choose between the Roloff home or jail. And uh, he was a piece of work. And Brother Roloff was all fired up and all, all, all exercised. And he said, you go get that man. He's a blasphemer and a sinner. And he needs to get in this home and get under the word of God. You go get him. And uh, he, they said, well, Brother Roloff, you, you told us, remember, you told us we got to get all these vegetables. And he'd have crates of vegetables and pack them in the plane. And he said, well, you go get that too. He said, yeah, but bro Brother Roloff, he said, if we get that, he said, we're not going to have room for this guy and the crates and the plane's going to be overweight and it's going to be dangerous to fly. He said, no, you just go down there and get it. It'll be just fine. And so they went and got this guy. And as they got him to the plane, they said, now, um, you know, you need the Lord. I don't want the Lord. I don't need God. I'm fine just the way I am. He was cursing and swearing and blaspheming. They said, okay, all right. So they got him in the back of the little Cessna plane and they crowd all these crates of vegetables and all the stuff that the home's gonna need around him. And uh, they said, well, Brother Roloff said to do it, so I guess we gotta do it. And they revved the engines up and they, 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 they put, put the gas all the way pedal to the metal and just at the last minute they pulled the lever and pulled the throttle man that plane went kind of putzing down the high down the uh, down the airport just just barely lifting off and and he got it up just barely lifted off and went nosedive right into the beach and all those crates of vegetables came slamming down around this this blaspheming criminal and and uh, and, and they they all climb out just dazed and and they get him out and he said hey What's a guy got to do to get saved around here? <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of ways to get people to come to Jesus. So I'm glad Brother Anthony gave us uh, a new insight on some soul winning methods tonight. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Second Chronicles 24. I draw your attention to what the Bible says. In verse number 15, but Jehoiada waxed old and was full of days when he died. And 130 years old was he when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and toward his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them. Father, speak to our hearts tonight. I pray that everyone here would have their heart need met. 
Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd quiet us, focus us. Lord, coming from a busy day and sitting in harrowing traffic, trying to avoid accidents just so that we can get to church, Lord. And Lord, sometimes our minds just need to be settled. We pray right now that you'd help us to stay our minds on you. Give us a peace that passes all understanding so that we can hear and heed the word that you give us tonight. Lord, you have something for everyone here. I pray for anyone in this place that's not saved, that tonight they would be born again, and tonight they would call upon Jesus Christ and make him their Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen Christians, strengthen those weak hands that hang down, and Lord, those that are trying to do what's right, but they're faint in the midst of battle. Strengthen us to do and be what we ought to do and be, and we'll thank you because we ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. He was a dear friend of mine. He was a few years older than I, just a few years older. We spent a lot of time together when I was growing up, going hunting and camping up in the north woods of Minnesota. He and his brother had had probably one of the greatest influences of anyone in my life. He was a friend when I needed it, and I'm so thankful that I could call him my friend. He went off, trained for ministry, came back, took a church, pastored it for several years. He led the church to move to one building and get their own permanent location. They went to another building, and, and it was a step up. Then they merged churches. He was enjoying a fruitful ministry. It seemed I'd preached for him just months before. I talked to him on the phone in October. That was our last conversation. In the month of February, he took his life. I was preaching in North Carolina when I heard the news. I sensed from another friend, a mutual friend, that something was wrong and I didn't know what or the circumstances. When I called him, he was in such despair. So this is the worst day of my life, Dwight. I said, what, what's going on? And he told me that our mutual friend had died. He drifted. He'd gotten away from the Lord. He was in ministry. He was serving God. He was proclaiming the truth while getting away from the Lord. And you know, he wrote, in the note that he left, these words. Too long my vessel had strayed afar from thy harbor's peaceful shore. Too long I'd sailed tempest-tossed. Now I'm home to sail no more. How oft I thought of that peaceful cove while out on the sea of sin. How oft I wished for that place of love. I wished for God's port again. Oh, I loved that land while I lived there, though my stay seemed oh so short. For my anchor had not sunk down low when a breeze blew me out of port. A gentle breeze from the tempter came and caught my sails unfurled. And I found my ship on the sea of shame and into the tempest hurled. Then through the clouds of that stormy night, a light glimmered off from the shore it was to the gleam that I made my flight. Now my vessel will sail no more. For I've anchored my ship in the harbor of rest. My sails I've folded away. I've made my home here in the land of the blessed. Never more from God's harbor to stray. 
You know, my thought comes to my mind when I think of my dear friend and the heartbreak and agony of those days of scheduling his funeral and weeping with friends and loved ones. This thought that he didn't finish his course. That he broke the heart of his wife, his family, and he didn't finish his course. You see, it's not just unsaved people that make wrong decisions. Sometimes saved people make wrong decisions. And make no mistake, suicide is a wrong decision. It cuts short God's plan for your life. It cuts short the opportunities that you have to reach out to others and minister to them. It cuts short the ministries that God has for you. It cuts short the race that God has for you to run. He didn't finish his course. Oftentimes when I was growing up, my mom or my dad would say these words. Finish what you start. Has your parents ever said anything like that to you? Finish what you start. It's good advice. It's good wisdom. It's more than just something that mom or dad thought up so that they could have a pithy saying. It's real and it's truth. Finish what you start. Paul said, neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy. And he later would say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I think of the many that could have been saved if this preacher friend of mine would have stayed the course, worked through the problem, not listened to the influences of hell that would try to cut his life short. I think of what might have been If he'd finished his course. Mom and dad would tell me when I was young, while I was eating breakfast, finish what you start. Finish that plate. They would tell me when I would pick up a book and be halfway through and want to set it down, they'd say, finish what you start. They'd tell me when I'd started a project to carve a a duck decoy or some kind of wood carving project, finish what you start. Don't leave it half done. They'd tell me when I'd start on my piano practice, finish what you start. Don't quit. They'd tell me as I had a paper due on a certain day and I wanted to procrastinate, finish what you start. They'd tell me when I was discouraged in college to finish what you start. That was constant in my life. Finish what you start. The test of your character is what it takes to stop you and God has set you on a course to finish what you started. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And Jesus cried as he hung between heaven and earth, to Tetelestai, it is finished. He was able to finish his course and everyone here benefits as a result of it. So for just a few moments tonight, I want us to see from the Bible how essential it is that we finish what we start. And I'm going to look for an example in the life of Jehoiada and, or Joash. Joash was seven years old, Second Chronicles 24.1 tells us. He was seven years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Watch this. All the days of Jehoiada the priest. 
He was seven years old. Now, sometimes we look in the Bible and we see those that are seven-year-old kings or 14-year-old or, or eight-year-old kings and we say, oh, wow, that, wow, that's amazing. Wow. And we say it to our children, you know God could use you to be a king. Well, let me just pause and give some perspective. Whenever the children ruled and whenever the women ruled in Bible times, it was not a good thing. It was a bad thing. Now, I'm not saying all the women that ruled were bad. Deborah was a good judge. I'm simply saying that whenever the children ruled or the women ruled, it was not God's plan. God intends men for you to lead. He intends for you to step up to the plate, for put, to put your man pants on, to get up and get the job done and to lead. And there's a lot of people that are depending upon you to do just that. It is God's will that the men lead. So whenever the women were leading or the children were leading, it was because of God's judgment or it was precipitating God's judgment. And so Joash was seven years old. He comes to reign while uh, Athaliah, the wicked, wicked queen, had ruled in Jerusalem. It was a bad day. He began to reign in Jerusalem when he was seven years old. Thank God somebody gave him guidance. And that somebody was Jehoiada. Thank God for Jehoiada. Jehoiada had decided that he would call for the Levites to come in. And they would bring Athaliah in just as Joash was going to be crowned. And, and if anybody withstood it, they would be taken out and killed. And Joash was crowned and Athaliah cried treason, treason. And they took her out and put her in her place. And Joash did what was right. Thank the Lord that he did what was right. The Bible says in verse number uh, 11 that Joash had a desire and a burden to, to have uh, an offering. So he raised money for an offering and he set up a, 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 a little uh, case or a chest for the offering to be there. And people brought money day after day. It was a, a, a burden on his heart. Verse number 4, it came to pass after this that Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord. And he gathered together the priests and the Levites and said to them, go out unto the cities of Judah and gather of all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year. See that ye hasten the matter, howbeit the Levites hastened it not. And the king called for Jehoiada the chief and said unto him, Why hast thou not required of the Levites to bring in out of Judah and out of Jerusalem the collection according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord and of the congregation of Israel for the tabernacle of witness? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken up the house of God. And also all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord did they bestow upon upon Balaam. So this was a good king. Joash was a good king. He might have even been Baptist because he was leading and taking an offering. I mean, he knew how to raise some money and he got some money raised and it was a good thing. And it was to honor and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So God was doing something special and something powerful. And now in this passage of scripture, Joash is, is leading in the repair of the temple of the Lord. But when Jehoiada came to die, he was 130 years old when he died. I hope I live to be 130 years. Man, that'd be awesome. The only thing better than that would to go up, to go up in the rapture. That'd be the only thing better than that. I mean, I hope I'm 130 and Brother Fong is 150 and we're walking around the streets of San Leandro trying to get people saved. I mean, I hope that. Don't you? I hope that. That's exciting. I hope that we're, we're, uh, we're uh, me, I'm 130 and Anthony's 120 and we're driving people down and trying to get them saved. I hope that, that we do that. Hey, uh, here he is, 130, and he was a godly man. Jehoiada was a man of weight. 
and character. He was a man of substance. Thank God for Jehoiada. But you know, Joash took a turn after Jehoiada died. Let's look at it, verse number 16 or 17. Now, after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them. I want us to notice four simple points tonight. Number one, I want us to see the sinful drift. The sinful drift. The last time I was here, I began to think about this matter of drift and how easy it is to drift away from God. Now, if you've never been saved, you're not with God right now. I mean, you might be religious and moral, and and I respect all that. I'm not trying to undermine or dishonor any of that. But if you've never been saved, you need to be saved tonight. You, You are not in a drift. You're in a fast current that is taking you straight towards hell and far away from God. And that's just a simple fact that everyone that's lost needs to be born again. But if you're saved, you better anchor your soul to the haven of rest. You better anchor your soul to the word of God. You better anchor your soul to the Lord. He was anchored to Jehoiada, but ultimately not to Jehovah. Your true character and godliness are revealed when those about you and those ahead of you and those above you fade away, pass away, or slip away. How do you respond when those around you, those above you, slip away? Well, you said, preacher, I don't know how I'll respond. I'll tell you how you'll respond. How do you respond now when they're not around looking over your shoulder? How do you respond now when you're in private? Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you really are. And Jehoash, Joash, he, when Jehoiada died, 130 years old, no doubt, it's likely he had some kind of state funeral. The Bible says that he was buried in the, in the, in, in the place where the kings were buried. Uh, but now the scripture tells us that there's a drift. Oh, Listen to me, young people. There's a massive drift away from good and from God. There's a massive drift away from truth. There's a massive current. Sometimes it's a swirling current on the surface that you can see. Sometimes it's an undercurrent that you can't see. When I was growing up, I went to a camp in Wisconsin that our church owned, and it was uh, right next to Minnesota. It was, it was split by the St. Croix River. And we would get in canoes, and we would go out to a sandbar out in the middle of the river, and that's where we would swim. But we had to be careful, and if the river was high, we couldn't swim. And there was a reason, because the currents were very swift. And sometimes those currents were underneath the surface, imperceptible to the human eye. But they could suck you down and hold you long. And that's what's happened here to our friend Joash. It was a sinful drift. His anchor was not true to the word of God. I want you to notice his adoration. The Bible says, now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them. In other words, he accepted their worship, their adoration. He accepted, he accepted their, their honor. I was talking to pastor today and had a very powerful thought that if I'm worshiping the Lord and talking to the Lord every day and hearing from him, that I'm not going to be impressed or intimidated by man. And we should not be overly impressed or intimidated by man when we've been talking to God, when we've been worshiping the Lord. When men can really jerk our chain, can't they? Men can bind us. 
Men can confuse us. Men inadvertently and sometimes advertently can intimidate us or impress us. And we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus and put it on men. Oh, there was a sinful drift. I want you to know that if you're worshiping God, you won't accept or be swayed by the worship of men. If you're worshiping God, you won't be intimidated or impressed overly by men. But that's what happened here. These princes came, and you'll see it was very short-lived. Verse number 18, and they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. That means these princes, these leaders, these politicians, if you will. Do you know the word politician comes from two Latin words? One is poly, which means many, and tick, which means blood-sucking insect. But anyway, I just thought that I'd show that out there. Uh, In 2 Chronicles 24, it says that these princes led them and they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. And groves and how? What? How could that happen? This is not even a different chapter. It's the same chapter where... Where Joash says, we need to raise money to repair the house of the Lord. And now they're serving and worshiping idols in groves? Tragic, dreadful. This is worse than possibly imagined. The Bible tells us in this passage that they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers. So much for those offerings. So much for that sacrifice. So much for those repairs. Why, they should have just left the money in their pockets. They should have kept it in their bank accounts. If that's what they're going to do, in just one fell swoop, one quick drift that takes them away from God because their anchor's not sure and tied to their moorings, they're now worshiping groves and idols. And the Bible says, wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespass. Watch this, this is powerful. I want you to notice number two, the sad decision. I want you to notice the sad decision. It was made out of ignorance and ingratitude. We're going to come back and visit this point, but I want to put it right here so that we see it was made out of ignorance. Why do people drift? Why do people take a different direction? Why do preachers change? Why do churches compromise? Why do churches that were once beacons of light and hope and once preached the gospel and once faithfully proclaimed the truth and had fiery all-night prayer meetings, why do they suddenly go to some contemporary compromising model? Why? It's because of ignorance. Ignorance of history, either willful or unintentional, but either way, it's ignorance. And then it's ingratitude. We'll see it in a moment. I want you to see that because we'll revisit that point. But number two, I want you to notice, or number three, I want you to notice the seer's declaration. There was number one, the sinful drift. Number two, the sad decision. Number three, I want you to notice the seer's declaration. The seer's declaration. It says in verse 19, yet he sent prophets to them. Thank God. Thank God he's sending prophets. When God sends you a prophet and a preacher, whether it's your mom or your dad or a teacher or a coach or a preacher or a youth pastor, don't get mad. Don't get angry. Don't react in hostility. Say, thank God he's sending me a message. He's sending me someone that cares. And if you think it's easy for a preacher to preach against the grain and against the current, you ought to try it sometime. Nobody, nobody but a preacher can understand a preacher's burden. A preacher that lays his head on his pillow at night and wonders if he did enough. 
A preacher that weeps himself to sleep and wakes up with a heavy hundred pound chest weight because he's not sure if he said what he needed to say. A preacher that gets under the burden of the word of God and says, oh, this will be such a help to so-and-so. And he gets up to preach and so-and-so decided to stay home and watch March Madness. Nobody, nobody but a preacher understands the weight and the burden of a preacher who gets up to preach and he feels his own inadequacies and he's prayed himself full and he's pouring himself out and he wonders if people are even responding, if they're even listening, if they're paying attention and turning away and turning off the din of this world and the busyness. Nobody understands but a preacher, the burden of a preacher. But thank God that he sent prophets. I want you to notice something about it. These prophets were sent and they were plural. Yet he sent prophets to them. Just like God sending prophets to some young person in this place who's drifting away from God and away from the teaching of your parents and listening to other voices, whether it be philosophy or your own ideas or some social media feed or some internet website or icon or just your own flesh. God sends prophets again and again. They were plural. I want you to notice number two, it was powerful. Look at this. This is so good. In verse 19, it says, yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. You know, we sing revive us again. Do you know why? Because we need it again. And we need it again. And we need it again. The songwriter wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And the songwriter that wrote that, after he wrote that good song, come thou fount of many blessings, tune my heart to sing thy praise, walked away from the Lord. Richard Roberts was his name. He was riding in a carriage. He was on his way, uh, just his way with uh, another lady. He didn't even want to disturb her. But she said, no, 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 you can ride in here. As as they're riding along, she's humming the tune to the song he wrote. He said, ma'am, do you know what you're singing? Yes, she said, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. He said, ma'am, do you know who I am? She said, well, no, sir, how would I know that? He said, I'm Richard Roberts, the author of that song. And now look at me, I've dissipated my life with drink. She said, the streams of mercy are never ceasing. You can come back to God. They sent the prophets to him so that they would bring them again. Revive us again and again and again and again when we wander. To bring them again. Wow. Unto the Lord and they testified against them. This was powerful. Again, if you think it's easy to testify against the grain of the world and against the majority and against the thoughts that have been put in people's minds throughout the week of humanism and self-will and self-value outside the word of God, you've got another thing coming. It was powerful. Watch, it was personal. Look at verse number 19. It says, but they would not give ear. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people, and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? 
Because you have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. By the way, if you're not prospering, I'm talking about, you don't have peace, you don't have joy, your life seems to be just just covered over in the thorns and thistles of this old world. If you're not prospering and the Lord's not blessing and you're not getting answers to prayer and the heavens are brass and it doesn't seem like you're getting anything from the word of God and it just seems like you're in a dry place, it would be a good time to do some heart searching. And now Zechariah says, why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Now, I want you to think with me. Jehoiada was 130 years old when he died. We know that Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 40 years. So that would put... That would put Jehoiada back at, at about 90 years or 80-some years when, Jeho- when Joash was born and his wife hid him away so that Athaliah's wicked, murderous knife couldn't get to his heart. It's possible that Zedekiah was 40, we don't know exactly, when Joash was born. It would almost have been like he was a a father figure or an older brother figure to Joash. And Jehoiada was like the grandfather figure. He was in his 80s. That's how old my dad is right now. Uh, uh, Zechariah was in his 40s. And and Joash is just a seven-year-old. And Zechariah likely was there to teach him about walking and teach him about the word of God and teach him proper respect. And and no doubt Jehoiada was all involved in that too. So it was not just messages from a prophet. It was plural. They were prophets. And it was powerful because they came again and again and they stood against. They were preaching against It's one thing to preach to encourage people. It's one thing to give somebody a pat on the back through your preaching and give them an attaboy. But when you're preaching against, it is powerful. But it was personal. Because God sent Zechariah, who likely was just, Joash was a part of the family. Wow. Yes, he had royal blood. Yes, he was the heir to the throne. Yes, Jehoiada knew that, and Zechariah knew that. But when they're turning to their groves and worshiping in their high places and their false gods, and they've just raised money to repair the temple, what in the world were they thinking? That's what I want to ask people sometime. I want to ask them, what in the world are you thinking? What is wrong with your mind? I want to ask somebody that's here tonight that's not saved, What in the world are you thinking? How and why would you say no to Jesus? Why would you say no to his pardon? Why would you turn away life? Why would you say yes to hell and damnation and destruction and the miserable life you're living right now? And don't fool anyone. You don't fool anyone. You can have your smile and you can drive around in your fancy car and have bunches of money in your bank account. But if you're lost, you're miserable, plain and simple. And you know it when you look in the mirror. Why would you choose that for life? What in the world are you thinking? Why wouldn't you come to Jesus tonight? 
Why wouldn't you believe on Christ? Why wouldn't you let him take your sin burden? Why wouldn't you turn him from a direction fast towards hell to fast towards heaven? Why would you say no to that? Why would you say no to his pardon that he bought and procured and paid for with his own precious blood? Why would you say no to that? What could you possibly be thinking? I guarantee it's not logical. It's not reasonable. It's not sensible. We were out witnessing this afternoon. There was a man named Adam that came to the door. And we said, we'd love for you to come to Easter. Oh, he said, I, I, I can't do that. And I said, I'm heathen. I said, we're inviting every heathen in Oakland to come. I said, we want you to be there. It'll be great for you to come. He said, well, he says, I'm an Odinist. Now, I've heard of a lot of things, but I'd never heard of that. I said, what in the world is an Odinist? Well, he said, it's back in Norse Viking lore. Oh, oh, I know about that because I happen to be from Minnesota. And there is a little bit of Norwegian blood running through my vein. So, you know, I tried to relate to him, you know. I mean, look. We Minnesotans believe Christopher Columbus was a day late and a dollar short and that long before he ever discovered America, Leif Erikson was on this soil. A friend of mine who's Italian said, it might have been a Norwegian that discovered America, but it took an Italian to know what he really had. Anyway... Anyway, uh, we believe, we believe that, in fact, we have a shrine, Brother Allen, to Leif Erikson in Duluth, Minnesota, surrounded by a rose garden, and faithful Minnesotans always make a trip back to Leif Erikson. So, look, I thought, man, I'm going to relate to this guy. Well, (laughs) he was making up every excuse in the book. Well, I don't really believe the Bible. Do Do you know, he had been, he'd read through the Bible. I said, how much have you read through the Bible? Twice. I said, twice. I said, I know some Christians that haven't read through it once. I said, that, that is phenomenal. I said, Adam, do you even realize what God is giving you right now? He said, well, I, I think he wasn't quite sure how to take me. He, he said, I said, do you know the privilege and the opportunity that is before you? You have read through the Bible objectively twice. You are so close to the light and so close to the truth. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't really believe all that, you know, about Jesus. I said, well, Jesus is the son of God. If he's not, he's nothing but a liar. You can't take any kind of in-between ground. He said, yeah, yeah, but you know, I, you know, there's a story and they're repeated over and over. I said, no, Jesus is God of very gods. I said, either he is or he's an absolute fraud. And I said, the Bible is the word of God. Well, I don't, you know, I don't believe all that. I mean, I just, I just don't. I said, I don't care whether you don't believe it or not. I said, it is truth. I said, if I go jump off the roof of your house and you say, what, 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 what are you doing up there? I said, well, I'm going to fly. And, and, and you say, no, you're not going to fly. How are you going to fly? You got a jet, you got wings, you got some kind of kite, you got a Parrot. What? You're not going to fly. Oh, yes, I am. I'm going to flap my arms up and down and I'm going to fly. I said, I said, Adam, I said, the laws of gravity scream that I'm not going up. I'm going down. And it doesn't matter whether I believe I'm going up or not. I said, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or whether you believe in Jesus or you believe in the Bible. I said, it is truth whether you admit it or not. I said, and you are so close to being saved. All you need to do is go back to the scripture and read the scripture and believe the God of the scripture you could do that right now 
I want to ask him, what in the world are you thinking? God put you in jail so that you could read the Bible through twice? Are you kidding me? You're not receiving the God of the Bible? And what could Joash possibly be thinking? That's what, Ze- that's what Zechariah is saying. Why are you worshiping these false gods? You can't prosper. There's no forward motion, no upward, onward. You will not prosper because you've forsaken the Lord. He hath also forsaken you. And look what the Bible says. They conspired against him. You know, honestly, pastor, when I read this passage, it says in verse 18, and they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers. So I'm holding out hope of all hopes that maybe it's not really Joash. Maybe he was just a figurehead and he got his head turned and it's the princes doing it. In verse number 21, they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king. So they includes the king. Oh, how quickly will we'll go away from God and oh, how far we'll go away from God when we won't take his word seriously. The commandment of the king was what caused Zechariah to be stoned. In the court of the house of the Lord. They didn't have enough decency to take him out to the city dump. They didn't have enough decency to take him out to the city streets. They did it with all disrespect right in the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. There's that ignorance again. Sad decision, isn't it? Slew his son, and when he died, he said, that's Zechariah speaking, the Lord look upon it and require it. It was ignorance and ingratitude, the height of it. Wow. And it came to pass at the end of the year, watch this now, I want you to see it, that the host of Syria came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem. Remember, we've been here before, an outside nation. In fact, Syria being used by God to come and punish this nation that has turned to idolatry. And they destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people. Number four, and finally, I want you to notice the sure defeat. First, there was the, the sinful drift. Doesn't seem like a big deal. It's just a current. It's just a little bit of a drift. I mean, there's the shore. How far can we go away from the shore? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Well, we're about to see it. Then there was the sad decision to do away from the word of God and the seer's declaration. It was plural. It was powerful. It was personal. And they continued on with their sad decision. So now the sure defeat comes. First of all, the pagans were victorious. Hey, 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 ma'am, is that what you want? You want bitterness to creep into your life? You want idolatry to seep into your life? You want your way and your stubborn will to be the thing that rules on the throne of your life? Is that what you want so that the pagans are victorious? Destroy your home? Sir, is that what you want? The pagans to be victorious? The princes were vanquished. Look at what it says in verse number 24. It says, for the army, for the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men and the Lord delivered a very great host into their hand because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. 
So they executed judgment against Joash. Look at the end of verse 23. It says, they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all the spoil of them unto the king of Damascus. Hey, look up at me right now. The princes that came with their agenda to the king and bowed down to him and made obeisance to him in verse 17 didn't even get to enjoy it for 10 verses. A few years ago when the wicked, wicked, wicked decision came from the Supreme Court to make the, the, the lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender lifestyle a good thing and okay and legalized. By the way, you can legalize sin, but it still doesn't make it right. When they made that decision, I said, they better enjoy it while they can because they'll have all eternity to think about it. And that's true with any sin. That's not just true with that sin. The princes were vanquished. The potentate, the king, was violated. He said, well, how so? Quickly look at it. It says, verse number 25. It says in verse 25, when they were departed from him, for they left him in great diseases. I'd like some deep theologian to tell me what that means. What does it mean that they left King Joash in great diseases? Maybe chemical warfare and biological warfare isn't such a modern idea. His own servants conspired against him for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest. Why? Because he'd killed the prophets, killed Zechariah, and slew him on his bed, and he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they buried him not in the sepulchers of the kings. Watch this. There's diseases, conspiracy by women. He was slain on his bed, and he wasn't even buried with the kings. And by the way, it was Joash who set out the decree to stone the preacher. You hear me with your ears wide open and the volume turned way up. I thank God for the respect that is shown to the preacher around here. But in every place that I've preached in this country, I'm speaking about statewide, region-wide, there have been people in the pew or people planted there by the devil that have had one thing in mind. They're gonna stone the preacher. They might starve him out. They might sit there with their arms folded and say, we're not going to listen to what the preacher has to say. What does he know? He doesn't even have an accredited degree. They turn, turn rumors. I know of a preacher, a friend of mine right now in Ohio that took a church and his wife was above board and impeccable in her testimony. When she took a job at the bank, she said, I don't want to see any of the members of the church's funds and bank accounts. It's none of my business and it would breach ethics. And some of the people said a rumor about her that she was stealing money from their accounts and stealing money from church and she, her testimony lived down their false accusations. They started a false rumor about his son that he was a shaved head neo-Nazi. They started rumors about his daughter that she was drunk when in fact she had seen the deacon's daughter drink. What is that? It is a will to stone the preacher. If we can't respond rightly to his message, we'll just kill the messenger. And it's wicked as hell. And you'll, you mark it down, the people involved won't get away with it. So here comes Joash, and now how does he die? How does he die? In bed. You know what somebody has to do? All they have to do is come while he's covered up with diseases and take a pillow and go. What a shame. What an embarrassment. What a tragedy. It didn't have to end this way. 
They didn't even bury him in the sepulchers of the kings. And the ones that conspired against him included a woman, a Moabitess. Now listen to me carefully, ladies and gentlemen. You do not have to end up like Joash. Or like the preacher I started with in this message tonight. You can and should, by God's grace, finish what you started. You've set on the course of right, stay on the course. You set on the course of truth, say, stay on course. You've set on, the, set on the course of loyalty to the word of God, stay on course. You might have to hobble across the finish line, but finish what you start. It was 1968, and four athletes were sent on a long journey from East Africa to Mexico City in pursuit of Tanzania's first ever Olympic medal. None returned with gold, silver, or bronze. But the name of one man, John Stephen Aquari, endures to this day as a source of inspiration to countless athletes and fans in his country and around the world. Despite hailing from the home of Mount Kilimanjaro, Aquari was not used to training in the type of conditions presented by the host city. The Mexican capital was positioned 2,300 meters above sea level, and while world records tumbled in the sprint races, the field that lined up for the marathon faced a formidable challenge. Aquari was on the back foot from an early stage and began suffering from cramps as, as a result of the high altitude. But determined to improve his position, he was then involved in a pileup with other athletes nearing the halfway point of the race. It caused him to suffer a badly gashed and dislocated right knee, as well as a bruised shoulder. Aquari was advised to pull out of the race. Indeed, 18 of the 75 athletes who lined up for the race would fail to complete the course. But courage and pride outweighed the intense pain he was suffering. After receiving some treatment and a bandage for his knee from trackside medics, the Tanzanian elected to continue and finish what he had started. A voice calls from within to go on, and so he goes on, said one Olympic commentator. While Ethiopian runner Mamo Wolde, more comfortable with the altitude than most, was crossing the finish line to claim the gold, Aquari was laboring in a distant last place, but he had a never-say-die spirit. And it remained. As darkness fell and the crowd filtered out of the Estadio Olimpico Universitario, a lone figure embarked on the final 800 meters of his journey. Television crews rushed back to their spots to capture the moment that Aquari limped over the finish line over an hour after Wold's winning time of 2.20.26.4. When asked why he persevered in such punishing circumstances, Aquari uttered one of the most memorable and inspirational lines in the history of the games. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Amen. Now your race may finish this week. Mine may finish before the end of the month. But no one can deny what God has called us to. To finish what we start. Would you bow with me in prayer?
Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder with your heads bowed and eyes closed if you'd say, Preacher, I know I'm going to heaven, I'm sure of it. But you'd say, Brother Smith, I've been discouraged lately. I've been tempted, tempted strongly just to succumb to the drift. You say, Preacher, I know that I'm going to heaven, but honestly, I've been feeling like quitting and throwing in the towel. Maybe some of you have. You haven't checked out physically, but mentally, it's just as good as done. You say, Preacher, I'm going to check back in. I'm going to get in this race where I've sinned and where I've disregarded the preacher. I'm going to get back on my knees and I'm going to humble my heart before the message of God's word and I'm going to get right. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Slip it up high. God bless you. Good. Who else? Preacher, I've been feeling like quitting and giving up. I've been discouraged and I'm just going to get back in the fight. God bless you. Anybody else? A preacher, God's convicted me of some sin specifically. And tonight, I'm going to confess it and forsake it. I'm going to get right with God. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Slip it up high. Good. Praise the Lord. Question number three. How many of you would say, preacher, I'm not perfect, but I know I'm saved. And I'm so thankful for the day that I trusted Christ. I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. If you don't know that, don't raise your hand. But if you do, would you slip your hand up high? Slip it up high. Preacher, I know that I'm saved. I'm sure that I'm on my way to heaven. God bless you. You may put your hands down. I wonder if you're here and you're not saved. You'd say, preacher, would you pray for me? I don't know what I've been thinking. But tonight I want to use what God has given me as a mind and a heart. And I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ. I want to believe on him tonight. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Is there anyone here like that? Preacher, please pray for me. I couldn't raise my hand just now. I need to be saved and I want to be saved. Is there anyone at all? Just slip up your hand. I'll see it. In a moment, I'll remember you in prayer. Anyone? Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Everyone standing. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you even for the demise of Joash so that we can see that it's completely unnecessary for us to quit, for us to drift. Lord, I think about Joash and I think it was completely solvable and it was completely avoidable. Lord, I pray that this church would finish what it started, that they would set their eyes on eternity and they never take their eyes off of it. I pray that families would finish what they've started and marriages in this place would finish what they've started. I pray that Christians would finish what they've started and not get discouraged and not keep their eyes on the results, but fix their eyes on the prize. Lord, help us to finish what we start. I pray in Jesus' name.